specific um, items in terms of equity would be ensuring equal neighborhood access to these vehicles. And by that, that may mean uh, cities should require these companies to provide a certain number or percentage of rides within neighborhoods that they that traditional rideshare companies may not sufficiently serve um, and that are not sufficiently served by transit. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. As almost always, I'm Alex Roy, the Director of Special Operations for Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show, and the producer of Apex, The Secret Race Across America, a person, a movie that no one with any decency should ever, 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 ever watch, even though it's awesome. As almost always, Alex Roy, that's interesting to me. Uh, This is Kirsten Korosek. Always Kirsten Korosak, Transportation Editor at TechCrunch. Uh, I'm Ed Niedermeyer. Um, I wrote a book called Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors, uh, which you should definitely buy a copy of. Uh, and uh, I'm excited to be back here with my pals recording again. Um, and uh, we're joined this week by someone who I had the pleasure of speaking with um, uh, for a panel at at PAVE, getting to know uh, a, a little better um, as we were discussing sort of the intersection of, of AVs and, and cities and, and urbanism. Um, and I think that uh, in my experience anyway, uh, she has been one of the most interesting people to, to discuss this topic with. And I'm really glad she's here today. Uh, Sarah Kaufman, uh, Associate Director of the NYU Rudin Center for Transportation, um, New York University. Sarah, welcome to the Atonicast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, there's so much to discuss when it comes to AVs and 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 cities, um, and there's so many different angles to it. But I want to start with something that you're working on uh, right now for the city of New York. So the city of New York is is obviously huge city on the cutting edge of a lot of different things, uh, and yet AVs have been sort of slower to come there maybe than I think some people expected. There have been some announcements that didn't pan out and it's been kind of a slower thing. And now you're working directly in this in this area of what it's going to take for AVs to come to New York. Is that, if I, have I characterized that roughly accurately? Yes, that's, uh, that's very specific. Uh, New York is um, probably the largest market for AV companies to capture, but Obviously, things are moving a lot more slowly here. New York, as you probably know, is the densest city in America. And so that brings a lot of complications for AVs. I am working on the policy issues surrounding AVs entering New York City. So when we think about AVs, we think specifically about the vehicle. But in a place like New York, in a dense built environment, we need to think about the wraparound policy issues, which I can get more into, but basically falling under New York City's overarching goals of equity and sustainability and economic development. Can we do a level set real quick and just for for folks who might not know what the current policy is in New York City, um, you know, what is it generally? What are the do's and don'ts or what is allowed or not um, in to test and potentially deploy AVs in New York City? So at this point, New York City is pretty restrictive in terms of testing um, and permitting uh, because the technology just isn't there yet to deal with the pedestrian concentrations we have here. Um, So specifically, there is a permitting procedure through the city's Department of Transportation um, and but it is um, only it's only been recently developed and. Waymo, for example, has come to New York, but only for HD mapping purposes and not for actual testing of vehicles. So that's the pace that we're moving at right now. And Mobilize there too, though, right? Aren't they? um, Mm -hmm. Is there any other company um, that's also there testing in some capacity? So Optimus Ride is testing in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So it's in a closed campus setting, but that's a shared shuttle um, that's pretty successful as far as I know. So so you mentioned the technology not being ready. I think, you know, pretty self-evident that, you know, it's it's not quite quite there yet, especially for, you know, uh, certain certain domains. And and I think it's pretty easy to understand why New York is is gonna be one of the most the most challenging domains for this technology. 
Um, but, you know, a lot of those sort of regulatory questions tend to center around safety, right? And, and that's when we think of the, the technology not being ready, the, the safety risks that presents is, is what leaps out at, at folks. But you also mentioned a number of other policy goals there that um, I think we don't hear so much talk about from the public sector often in, in terms of AVs. Um, so it sounds, I mean, obviously, I think, you know, safety regulation tends to happen at the federal level for some aspects. And then and then obviously the state level regulating the drivers, right? vehicles at the federal level, drivers at the at the state level for safety. Um, but but talk more about the 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 goals that that New York has. Like like what do you uh, yeah like like what do you uh, what does it take to to sort of make AVs something that contribute positively to the to the city and what it's looking for? Sure. So we're doing this within an academic environment, so it's not necessarily representing the opinions of New York City. But um, but we're trying to establish basically a good citizenry standard for these vehicles. As you mentioned, safety is determined through other factors. But what are the other areas? What are the wraparound policies that impact how AVs will affect New York City? Um, things like what are data retention and um, discarding of data, third-party access going to look like? You know. The, there will be terabytes of images of people on the street who have nothing to do with the vehicle whose images will be captured with location and timestamps. Um, what will happen to New York City's 200,000 professional drivers, people who drive taxis and Ubers and Lyfts? You know, what will be their future? Um, how do we deploy these new technologies equitably between different neighborhoods to make sure that everyone has access um, while also making them affordable and accessible to people with disabilities. You know, do we require wheelchair ramps on every vehicle? How do people who have um, a visual or hearing impairment communicate with a driverless shuttle to let it know where they want to go? What is the what um, partnerships will these companies develop within the city? Things like um, every every high school in New York City, every public high school offers computer science as a course. How can we integrate those classes with these companies entering New York City? There's a real opportunity to set up these um, models of success as, as a requirement for companies operating in New York City. And we can really lead the way on that because we have the time. Yeah, let's start with the privacy one because this one's really fascinating to me. The the first of the of the many fascinating issues that you you mentioned there, um, I you know it, it's one that that I'm actually I'm a little surprised hasn't been discussed more because you're absolutely right. It's huge. I mean, these are literally data vacuums um, that just suck up huge amounts of data about the world, and we know that you know um, sort of location based data. Uh, is very difficult to privatize, uh, or I'm sorry, anonymize, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, and I know there's been some concern about this in Europe, uh, which I haven't followed quite as closely. Um, but but if you could just sort of talk about what are what are sort of the the major like concerns and and, and solutions that that you think can be put in place for for this particular issue? Sure. Well, so city agencies already have requirements on who can access data streams. Um, how many hours until this information has to be discarded, um, sharing data with emergency responders if there's an incident. So how does that fall into these AVs? Who holds on to the data, the raw video footage versus the data streams? And how does that impact your average person? One way it impacts your average person is if an organization like ICE gets access to the data, and finds a person of interest by using these kind of facial recognition features within street video footage. Um, perhaps somebody can be tracked by a PI if their spouse thinks that they've uh, thinks that their trip data would be relevant for proving infidelity, for example. Um, these are everyday use cases that that demonstrate the need for developing new standards or updated standards for data archiving, retention, and access that don't seem to be ready just yet. Usually, um, we have trip data from things like taxis already, 
but we don't have that data with this kind of three-dimensional look at you know who's around the vehicle, who happens to be nearby, and what are these origins and destinations telling us in terms of um, in terms of multiple rides that would that would demand some kind of like node of travel for the city. If if I were to just put a bunch of cameras on a car, like a regular human driven car, and just drive around, just because I know there's like automatic license plate scanners, which is kind of similar to this, but like thinking about the facial piece in particular, drive around New York City, just suck up, you know, suck up video of whoever's out everywhere, potentially use facial recognition. Are there any laws like at the federal level, the state level, that that sort of govern that kind of behavior, or or is this sort of beyond just there, autonomous vehicles? Is this is a sort of a broader issue? So there are laws about um, about commercial use of that footage. Um, so if you were to sell that footage, that would um, there would be regulations concerning that. If you were to um, if you were to publicize somebody's image without their consent, especially if it's a minor, there are regulations concerning that. And New York City has some pretty robust regulations in terms of taking photos into an apartment or another private location. You can't go up to someone's window and start taking pictures. And that's, you know, this is a law that's been in effect for a long time. But um, that being said, it hasn't been as as robust of a data set as it was in the past. And so it brings to light new challenges. Um, The commercial piece of it, uh, preventing like commercial enterprise, what about um, an enterprise selling that information back to the uh, city, county, state, or federal government? Is there any, um, is there any uh, issue or regulatory framework around preventing that? That's something we're still looking into. Uh, here in the U.S., you mentioned Europe, which has much more stringent regulations on that measure. But here in the U.S., people often willingly share their data with companies like Facebook, or TikTok or other um, or other social media, and so it it creates this kind of gray area of what does it mean for these images and videos that are captured um, when it's the individual versus the company that's using the information. Mm-hmm. The data piece is so interesting to me because on the flip side, private enterprise, and I'm not just talking about AV companies, but you know, that data is used to create better algorithms in order to understand traffic flow, in order to know your preferences and to have the music queued up and to create this whole world that it sounds very attractive. So um, how do you, do you, like Ed mentioned, think that there just isn't enough tension put on the downside of this? Or is it just that at least in the United States, we've accepted that we've given up our privacy in terms of like data sharing. And so it's not going to be as big of an issue as maybe it should be. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the answer that in the US, there's a lowered expectation of privacy than there is in Europe. And, you know, that's why our homes are full of smart home devices and our um, and our vehicles are starting to be now too. Um, this is only the next iteration. So I, I just, before we, we have so many, so many great topics to discuss here, before we move on from this one, I want to raise something because it's something I've just, I've thought a little bit about. Um, I remember a couple of years back when there was just a lot of talk about um, sort of bias and racism, frankly, in, in, in policing. And, and there was just a lot of like really fascinating reporting. And I became more aware, I'll put it that way. I became a lot more aware of, of, you know, the bias of, of human law enforcement. Right. And then, and so then the discourse kind of went to, well, like tra- camera based enforcement is this good thing. Right. And then I, and I didn't see as much cover that I kind of found it more on my own. Turns out there's been a number of cases where camera placement becomes deeply, deeply biased, right? The cameras are placed in places where they clearly target certain groups um, uh, of various kinds. And, um, and so it had kind of occurred to me like, well, an AV is sort of an interesting version of this, right? Because it's not looking for any, well, Potentially, at least, right? Like you, you would, you would think that, like, and and it depends very much, obviously, on 
the service and and the price point of the service and and things like that. But um, if anything, it would be sort of more biased towards wealthy folks, probably in theory, at least early on, but speculative. The point is, is that these drive around. So you don't have the fixed placement bias issue that you have with a lot of camera-based enforcement. So at least potentially, hypothetically, when you're dealing with this very, very tricky problem of, of bias in law enforcement, could the data coming from AVs be an interesting tool there? What are your, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think AVs could present a really interesting, I think what you're asking about is kind of equity of services and equity of enforcement. Um, So as we know, uh, enforcement of traffic regulations is heavily biased against people who are black and other minorities. Um, And so policing automation, as as you know it, Ed, is... you would think that it would take away from some of the bias. Um, the reason the cameras are placed in these in these areas that tend to be black and brown neighborhoods is because those are neighborhoods in most U.S. cities where there are the highest numbers of pedestrian fatalities. And, you know, that's not always due to the lack of enforcement, but due to the fact that people tend to speed through these neighborhoods, that drivers have less of a regard for the local population. And I do think that there is a challenge um, that has been brought up by, I believe, the University of Georgia. I'm sorry if I'm uh, citing this wrong, but um, but that there is, as we know, uh, facial recognition tools are not strong or not as strong at recognizing black faces um, and generally darker skin. So wouldn't it translate to the idea that autonomous vehicles using the same kind of recognition patterns to recognize people in front of them, pedestrians in front of them, may similarly have challenges in recognizing darker skinned pedestrians, which is a huge safety concern all over again. Yeah. Which is why we, I'm not a fan of camera only <laughs> solutions for vehicles that move. Right. Although it does, it does uh, help in general, in my opinion, because the, the police can't be everywhere. And as we know, that can be a recipe for disaster to have police pulling people over at random. Yeah. But, but I, I guess it sounds like it's sort of premature to have the, for the idea that essentially AVs could potentially like, because then obviously there's a fine line too between between um, you know making sure that that enforcement is fair and having just like overwhelming surveillance of everybody all the time everywhere right because um, mm-hmm. anyway but but it seems like we're still it's still sort of an early stage in this conversation about about whether or not AVs could be something whether the data from AVs and again it, it probably depends on you know what are the AVs how are they being deployed where are they being deployed. Um, and and then also, what is the data that you might use, and for what crimes or infractions or, or whatnot? Um, so it, it just kind of sounds like we're at the early stages of of that entire conversation. Uh, yes, I, I have a question. So, what if you were in the room with uh, any number, any one of the autonomous vehicle developers? What is the policy, the optimal policy that you would like to see them execute regarding this data privacy? That's a that's a big question, and it's a long list. Um, and I don't know if we have time top for five. all of that today. Top three, <laughs> so, top three, top five. So, so the first would be um, uh, kind of snapping uh, origin destination data to the nearest intersection, so that rider privacy is protected from their from their trips, um, so that you don't necessarily have someone maybe a bad actor at the company who can access specific user accounts and where they're going, where they're coming from, where they're going, you know, and what does that say about them? Um, And, you know, so that riders have a measure of privacy. Secondly, um, you know, there should be kind of automatic blurring of faces um, for the people surrounding the vehicle, uh, just random pedestrians who happen to be walking by and are captured on video. Um, and then the third is actually not 
exactly related to privacy, but that there should be a two-way sharing of data between these vehicle companies and with cities. So assuming most of these AV companies are operating fleets of vehicles in the city, they will have a pretty good sense of where there is sudden construction or where there's been a collision. And so they have areas to avoid. They should be sharing that with cities. And on the same token, the cities should be sharing things like event information and, you know, uh, street repairs with these vehicle companies so that we can ensure a a more optimized uh, routing of these vehicles through cities. I want to take Alex's question and expand it to the total standard. So, I I understand that the work is still going on, but uh, beyond the data piece, like what is a good AV citizen? Um, How do they operate and what should they at a minimum um, be doing? And and be specific because we all talk about like equity and accessibility, but it doesn't always, um, the details is what matters, I think, in this case. Sure, sure. So, um, for example, Equity, what specific um, items in terms of equity would be ensuring equal neighborhood access to these vehicles. And by that, that may mean uh, cities should require these companies to provide a certain number or percentage of rides within neighborhoods that they that traditional ride share companies may not sufficiently serve um, and that are not sufficiently served by transit. And also hiring from within these communities, not just saying, you know, here's our diversity report, um, but instead actually, you know, serving the na- these different neighborhoods and engaging their populations, um, either by hiring people, local residents who can help with planning services in these areas, and also taking into account their opinions about, you know, how services might be optimized within their areas. And in terms of accessibility, there are all sorts of measures that can be taken. And, you know, obviously we talked about wheelchair ramps, but then there are other accessibility concerns like um, service animals or bringing, um, bringing an aid on board with them. And should, that, should they be charged for that person? Um, what kind of communications can they receive from the vehicle? Is it only audio? Is it audio and video? Um, How can it be communicated a lot better? Having these systems in place would make these vehicles a better citizen. Um, But I think that what would be um, even stronger is ensuring uh, a lot of safety metrics, not only for the vehicle operation, but inside the vehicle in rideshare scenarios. So assuming that people are sharing rides with strangers, how how do you... kind of enforce good behavior by passengers who are strangers in a closed space in a basically a ride they can't get off of, right? Um, one thing that we've looked at a lot at the Rudin Center in, in our work on the pink tax is sexual harassment and assault on public transportation and how uh, many, if not a majority of women have experienced this. Um, and so how does that translate to a shared shuttle, you know, rideshare shuttle with strangers where there is no, say, rideshare driver on board. What if there's an emergency? What are they planning to do? Are they planning to have somebody watching CCTV cameras at all times? Because at scale, that is probably not the the answer. What is the communication to a home base going to look like? And how can people call for emergency help And that, again, leads into the enforcement piece. So those are just some of the more specific ideas that we've been thinking about. It's um, the last one. I mean, they're all really interesting. The sharing one, I think, is fascinating because this is oftentimes one of the key benefits that is used by AV developers to talk about, you know, the promise of potentially decreasing traffic congestion and it certainly could if you could get people to share. And we've seen a uh, shift away from wanting to share because of COVID. But even once that, uh, like removing that part for a moment, just one of the things about um, 
you know, being a woman and traveling and sharing a vehicle in which you're in close proximity with someone. Um, and it's only one person that can fit in the vehicle, or maybe you're one of four people who can fit in a vehicle and it's three men and just you that's close quarters to be thinking about and personal safety is, um, I'm sure that there are discussions happening in AV developers. I just don't know how extensive they are at this point because a lot of the issues and attention and capital have been focused on like the technical, you know, testing and things like that. Um, and I'm not going to put Alex on the spot because I know he can't talk too much about it, but, but just in general, I mean, I just don't see that as a topic that is addressed very often. Um, what are you seeing, Sarah? Um, cause you, I'm assuming that you're talking to a lot of these companies. Yeah. I mean, I think it's some, I think it's one of those situations where every company says that they have a solution in the works. Um, and I'm waiting to see what the solutions are. Um, and you know, it, it is, it is a societal problem that transportation is often being asked to answer for, you know, it's not the subway's fault that some guy is flashing young women, you know, it's not, that's not the fault of the subway, but you know, it, it only exacerbates the problem to set up these kind of riding with strangers scenarios. Um, and so, you know, I'm not hearing a lot of solutions from companies right now, but I also am not hearing a lot of solutions in general um, right. from well, any the, transit the, organization. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, my time, for example, I use public transit every day, um, living in Chicago on the bus and the L and depending on the time of day, like, I mean, I was just one of many other women I knew who in some way got accosted on the L or a bus. Like this was a common occurrence. It definitely happened to me. It definitely happened to me multiple times. And there's when, even in with a bus situation, um, the driver is, can only do so much and operate safely. And when you're in a mm-hmm. very crowded environment, literally like this, you know, jam packed, um, you know, how do you even, how you can't stop and address it. So, have you seen any example of any public transit in the world figure out how to deal with this issue of basically either dealing with assault when it happens or preventing it? Yeah. So there are a few examples. Um, I don't know how successful they are, but um, a few different transit organizations have separated out men and women on separate buses or train cars. Um, and, you know, I guess that, that helps for the duration of the in-vehicle time, but not the time in the platform or, you know, waiting for the bus, something like that. So it only, the protection only goes so far. Um, in Tokyo, the, uh, agency in charge of the subway there released an app that, you know, if somebody is being touched, the person, the woman can pull up the app and kind of press this button and it blares out of her phone, you pervert, get away from me. Um, which is, which is an interesting, you know, that brings in a lot of conversations about, you know, why, why she needs an app to kind of scream for her. But, you know, that's, that app has been downloaded, I think, almost a million times. So if that, you know, just goes to show you the scope of the problem. Um, in Mexico City, I believe they're piloting a new uh, a new app where somebody who feels kind of endangered on a bus can text this number. I guess it's not an app, but they can text this number um, with the information and that they feel unsafe. And then the driver is told by the central by the command center to pull over and pull that passenger off of the bus that really does put the bus driver in an interesting situation and the rest of the passengers who are now uh pulled over in the middle of nowhere um you know waiting for all of this to unfold so that's all to say that these are not perfect solutions um but but that it also needs to be raised when we talk about sharing AVs with strangers. Yeah. I mean, so, sorry, what, just to finish this thought, I was, I was just thinking that the only, 
way of transport that I can think of in which there's essentially attendance or flight attendants on airplanes. And they mm-hmm. oftentimes are handling all these conflicts, right? Like that we, and especially with the masks and things like that, but prior to the pandemic, they were oftentimes dealing with unruly passengers, maybe because of alcohol being involved, medical response, um, all these things that actually public transit and potentially in the future AVs will also have to address. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. what who, do we have a human being in there? Well, that economically doesn't make a lot of sense. And then how do you well, train like it, people? So the attendant model may make sense because, you know, as as we have in New York, 200,000 uh, professional drivers who will be automated out of their jobs you know, assuming these vehicles are sufficiently safe, um, you know, that is a kind of next step for these individuals to take on this kind of attendant or operator role on the vehicle. Of course, that takes away a seat from the shared ride, which, you know, affects the efficiency, but it could be the kind of uh, adult in the room that some passengers seem to need. I just want to know, and by the way, Alex, we have to get you in here. You're the only New Yorker uh, on the Autonicast, so we, we've like barely heard from you. But just uh, one anecdotal uh, uh, entry in the, uh, um, let's call them, uh, I think you said imperfect solutions. And I, I definitely don't don't present this as a solution, certainly not as a policy option, more of a, a weird anecdote. But this was a big problem in Japan. Uh, the subway perverts were a huge, huge, huge problem. I know, I, I think there've been a number of things that have been done there. I'm not really familiar with all the stuff on the policy side, but I'm familiar through my uh, uh, well-traveled friend, Bertle Schmidt, uh, that there was actually a club in Tokyo that catered to subway perverts that gave them a place where they could, in a consenting a consent-based environment, live out these fantasies. So there was this club that apparently was like underground and it was just a subway car and you could go there and consensually grope women who were sex workers. Uh, anyway, uh, again, I'm not trying to forward to this as a policy yeah. <laughs> option at I'm all. Sure I'm more just... Um, in New York City, I don't think we should be <laughs> opening up clubs to... It's uh, more of a measure of the problem, I think, right, than right, anything, right, yeah. anything like a solution. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> Alex Roy, on that note, let's Say get, that. A, let's get a real New Yorker in here. Yeah. <laughs> Ed's a, or wow. Alex is just shaking uh, his head saying, wow, right now. Um, well, let's talk about New York, um, Alex. Uh, you know, going back to New York, I, I remember when I lived in New York, which is most of my life, attempting to get a cab cross town uh, in the middle of the day. And it took like an hour and change to go across town, midtown. And walking was faster, obviously. It, you know, uh, this. Um, this notion that autonomous vehicles will render uh, 200,000 uh, ride hail drivers uh, put out of the work. Like, I don't buy it um, just because uh, for a number of reasons, starting with the technology is not going to work everywhere, 24-7, all at once, uh, to the degree that anyone wants it to, except someone in public relations at a company that's exaggerating what their cars can do. Um, you know, this is going to be, these vehicles are going to be feathered in. Uh, at least if a company is being honest, they're going to say that. Uh, and New York is one of the hardest places it's going to be to deploy these, these this technology. So I'm not concerned about that, at least in New York's case. I think that's pretty low in the totem pole. I understand the privacy concerns in a big way. Um, and without talking about the company I work for, these conversations, I, I, they are being had. I don't know if they're being had by everybody, uh, but they're certainly being had in a number of places. And I, I sit down at some of these meetings and I feel pretty good about that. The thing that concerns me, I'd love to hear, know how much you hear about this on the ground in New York because I moved out of the city. Uh, it doesn't matter if autonomous vehicles work literally perfectly in a city like New York where congestion is so high. Uh, because the solution is not necessarily a safer four-wheeled vehicle. It's an it's a, an environment where everything else is optimized such that nobody you, picks a car as the first solution. So who, if anyone, has is talking um, from the autonomous vehicle side to the city, to New York City, 
and the transit authorities about how to integrate and feather autonomous vehicles into the ecosystem. Is that happening? Um, you know, I'm not I'm not in those meetings, <laughs> but you know, it's uh, as far as I know, it's a case by case basis on the permitting front. Um, in terms of in terms of drivers being automated, I think in terms of this project, it's the assumption for the project is that these vehicles are deemed safe enough to operate in New York City at a level five. You know, so it, this could be fifty years away. But it's um, but the concept is, you know, what are the policy issues in addition to safety? So that is something to keep on our radar, um, regardless of whether it's happening soon. Um, but you're right about the congestion in New York City, and you know, in here in the city, as uh, people, your listeners probably know, where hopefully getting congestion pricing soon, which would reduce the number of vehicles in the city. And so kind of the overarching hope or plan for New York City is that there will be fewer four-wheeled vehicles um, in general, and that would encourage uh, the sharing of vehicles, which is what would what would uh, predicate the kind of rideshare model that we're talking about. Um, and, you know, it could result in what could be a really interesting form of dynamic transit, basically replacing some of our big lumbering buses that travel every road in the city almost to um, with kind of smaller form shared rides that travel around the city um, somewhat on demand. And, you know, that could be a major congestion reducer by prioritizing these shared vehicles as well as two-wheeled or three-wheeled vehicles. How do you see congestion pricing working? I mean, literally, it seems inevitable to me that it's going to happen mm -hmm. uh, and that it should happen. But what, like, what are the mechanics of it? Uh, is our vehicles just charge a flat rate for entering the center, central zone, say, of lower Manhattan? Or is it VMT? What is it? What should it be? So, Right. So the details are still actually being worked out. But it would be um, a certain price, probably it'll be up to $23 for entering the congestion zone in Manhattan, which is Manhattan south of about 60th Street, um, excluding the highways on the two edges of Manhattan, which are the FDR Drive and the West Side Highway. So, um, so yes, that's a, that's a steep price to pay. Um, <clears throat> logistically, it would probably be worked out through uh, through beacons like the Easy Pass or license plate imaging to identify the vehicle. We do have an issue with automated enforcement here of people defacing their license plates so that they don't get charged, um, you know, for speeding or running red lights because their license plates can't be recognized. Um, and I imagine that would happen with congestion pricing as well if it's purely based on video imagery. Uh, so the mechanics um, and the VMT don't apply here, except that um, there is a reduction that's ongoing in um, ride hail vehicles like Ubers and Lyfts in to what amount of the time they can spend cruising without a passenger. So that is... A, a kind of tangential form of congestion pricing that's already happening. And um, that's intended to reduce the number of Ubers and Lyfts roaming the streets. On that note, um, the, the cruising piece, um, but kind of folding in the AV question, how much, we, we talked a lot about uh, the good citizenry sort of standard, and a lot of it is really kind of aiming it at the developers, but I'm wondering if there's a, if the city, whether it's New York or any other city, has a role to play in creating, for example, infrastructure that supports it, or do you think that companies really need to be able to exist in existing infrastructure and that it's just too big of a stretch financially and just bureaucracy-wise to have infrastructure that would alleviate some problems or make make um, make it easier for people to 
get access. So for example, uh, curb management issues or building out areas for AVs or even more on the more extreme infrastructure side, like AV only lanes, um, which I have mixed feelings about. What, what is your view on, on that piece? Yeah. So I'm glad you brought up curb space because in an ideal world, curbs would not be used for free car parking, which is really storage of private property. Um, but instead, we would see more dynamic uses of curbs. Uh, that would be loading and unloading of e-commerce vehicles um, and uh, especially parking for more active vehicles like shared bikes and scooters. And then finally, we could see um, pickup and drop-off zones which would be designated locations for people to get into and out of shared ride vehicles. And that's been piloted already in Washington, D.C. to some success. They saw huge safety improvements, especially in the kind of nighttime, the nightlife areas um, where people were flowing out between cars to get into their Ubers and you know, resulted in all sorts of safety problems. So they saw major safety improvements by designated these PUDOs, pickup drop-off zones. Um, so those are those are pieces of infrastructure that should be happening already and can only be can only benefit the use of AVs. Um, other things that the city can do are ensuring things that um, already should be taking place, like. Uh, like making lane lines clear. Um, and so in terms of AVs, they probably need to be able to read the lane lines, but also every driver should be able to do that, should be able to see where their lane ends and begins. Um, and of course there should be, uh, as these vehicles get feathered into the city, as you said, Alex, um, we need to accommodate the kind of, reckless driving that abounds in New York City and many other places by building robust infrastructure to protect more vulnerable users, specifically cyclists, scooter riders, and pedestrians. Right now, there's a crisis of reckless driving here, as there is in most of the country. Um, and so if we build in, say, uh, barricades to protect bike lanes, there will be safer cyclists and safer pedestrians because when there are bike lanes in place, pedestrians are safer too. So those are just some of the measures cities can take. I disagree with the idea of an AV only lane, um, just like we wouldn't have a special lane for EVs. I don't see a need for one for AVs. Um, they should be technologically adept enough to operate within the city. Are there, are there certain... Oh, go ahead, Alex. No, you, Edward. Well, I was I was going to ask. I mean, you know, one of the the challenges with AVs is that we we use this term over and over again, and it's a useful shorthand, AVs, right? But it encompasses so many possible sorts of things. Um, Kirsten asked a little, uh, about transit earlier. I, I'm curious. You know, do you feel like there are certain use cases that do and don't fit the unique needs of of, of New York City? Um, you know, uh, from from the various ones that are that are out there, sort of being talked about or, or or planned. Yeah, I mean, one one bit that's been going around New York is is kind of the joke of well, if AVs stop for every pedestrian, they'll never get anywhere in New York City. Um, because once New Yorkers catch on to the idea that an AV is coming, they'll just cross the street, and this AV will never move all day. Yeah, well, because that's something we saw. I mean, that's something that really early on Google and its very earliest testing at Mountain View was an issue with cyclists. I know where the cyclists were afraid at first, but then as soon as they realized, oh no, these things are super conservative and they'll always stop for me, they would really like take liberty. And it's been this this dance. It's this social aspect of driving that you know I think is oftentimes hard to put into code, right? Uh, and even things like right. machine learning. It's just it's a it's not social intelligence the way humans have. Um, how how does that issue affect, you know, AVs in a place like like New York City, or how will they? You think? It's a that's a good question. I think like anywhere else, there is going to be a huge, uh, a hugely conflicted transition point when AVs are introduced to New York City and have to kind of integrate with 
human-driven vehicles um, because there will be so many conflicts about each driver predicting what the other is going to do and how they can best get around each other. So uh, I do think that this is presenting a huge challenge. I do want to add that I do think that, um, Kirsten, you brought up the idea of transit, and I think that there's an important opportunity here for these AV companies and uh, driver assistance systems companies to share some of their technology with public transit, especially buses, so that these vehicles can communicate with each other more easily. Um, there are some pilots going on, or planned pilots going uh, here in New York, concerning the kind of roller coaster caravan of buses, you know, and how that might optimize bus lanes. Um, but in general, if these technologies can be shared with transit, which may not be able to purchase its own driver assistance systems, we can make a lot more progress in safety and um, integration with automated vehicles. Alex, you were about to say something before Ed cut you off. Yesterday, there was a uh, woman in my mother's neighborhood in New York City who was hit and killed by a driver in a box truck. Uh, I, this story has happened so many times in my life growing up in New York. And like, what is, and then you have also like these stories of like vehicles that have, you know, accumulated, drivers have accumulated dozens of, of driving infractions. Uh, and they still, I guess they have suspended licenses and they're still driving around. What is the policy of the NYPD regarding an incident in which someone is stopped and has a suspended license and there have been multiple moving violations and potentially an injury or fatality? Why is that person not arrested on the spot? There is an ongoing conflict about this issue because people are still able to drive even when they have their licenses suspended because they are not being checked up on. So um, if the vehicle is spotted out and about, you know, there isn't, there isn't anyone doing the spotting, right? So if, um, if the vehicle, if this driver is out driving, who's going to stop them? It's simply suspending their license is simply asking them not to drive. But if they see a need to drive, they're still going to drive. We need better enforcement, kind of maybe verification or automated verification in vehicles, much like there's discussion about breathalyzer tests within vehicles. Perhaps drivers otherwise need to be authenticated um, before they start driving. We need to get serious about safety in vehicles or safety on our streets. And one way to do that is to ensure that multiple offenders are not getting behind the wheel yet again. And right now we're not doing that at all. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of wanted to, to zoom out a little bit and get your perspective on sort of, you know, on, on really on what you're doing. And, and frankly, I guess maybe why there doesn't seem to be as much of this happening as you might think or hope in that, you know, I, I there's definitely, I think, you know, a lot of the AV companies seem to have a very kind of tech sectory attitude towards regulation in general. And, and there's a spectrum there for sure. Um, and, and I think generally actually compared to a lot of tech companies and, and areas of the tech sector, uh, AVs are, are more engaged probably a little bit than, than others, but that's still, you know, um, there, there still seems to be a big gap from there to where sort of urbanists are. And I would say on the urbanist side as well, I would say you're in some ways a little bit of an exception in that you have these very strong urbanist principles, but you have no concerns, it seems like, with, with engaging. You want to be engaged with this new technology. You want to make it help shape it into something that serves the city and the principles that you stand for. But I do see like a lot of AV, I'm sorry, a lot of, of folks in the sort of urbanist camp or who seem to be in that camp not even want to engage with the technology, just kind of write it off um, and and just sort of say, yeah, it's just more cars or whatever. Um, and and so sort of in the, there's sort of a gap there in between these two camps. And and it seems like the work that you're doing is is uh, it's fascinating, but it also must be hard and maybe a little bit lonely at, at times. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is just my perception of the kind of conversation generally. Do you think that's accurate? And you know. How do you, how do I guess probably good to focus on the positive? Like, how do we kind of move forward in that and sort of bring this conversation a little more together? Because most AVs are, are aimed at urban 
you know, operations and urban context and things like that. And yet this conversation between the city and the technology isn't happening as much as it could. So I think that the last thing you said, the conversation between the city and the technology isn't happening as much as it could, is is the overarching lesson for um, most technological developments. And in my opinion, AVs are coming, you know, in a few years, in 10 years, in 20 years, the public seems to think that it's almost here because of, you know, marketing efforts. Um, and so how do we mitigate the public response as well as kind of nudge the city into these more advanced scenarios? In my opinion, this technology is coming. Um, and so let's plan for it. And at the same time, you know, I do agree with the urbanist need to reduce cars in the city. But if we're going to have cars, why not have ones that are more efficient and safer out on the streets? Um, and so, yes, it is lonely work at times. Um, but, you know, it's it, that's, I guess, the special place of academia is that you get to nudge people towards uh, towards this bridge with every project and getting them in the same room to talk to each other. That was the, the biggest component of this good citizenry standard was bringing together three workshops full of stakeholders from the public, private, and nonprofit sectors to talk through some of these issues in depth. And I'll put out the results of that with this project in a couple of months. Um, but the biggest, uh, the most important idea is to accept technological change and adapt it to a local population's needs and move forward together. Yeah. Um, and, and Finally, I think it's, it's I, something I can agree with. <laughs> a guest on the show, I totally agree with. <laughs> I, no, I think it's fascinating that, that you mentioned the role of academia too here, because I think it's funny just thinking about all the things that we've covered in this, in this almost hour long conversation now. I mean, just if you just strip out even the AV stuff, just the non-AV issues that we've discussed are all so complex and so challenging. And it makes sense that regulators have so much on their plate in the here and now that like investing a lot of time in this future technology is just something they don't have the bandwidth for. Like that, especially in a place like New York, it makes perfect sense. Um, so I think it's 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 fascinating that you mentioned that like really maybe academia is where some of this conversation should be kind of more rooted, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And then, of course, there's also the challenge of just getting folks into into city governments uh, who have the, the the technical knowledge, right, to really engage with this stuff as well. And that's what we're training our students to do. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating and, and really important work. I'm I'm bummed that we have to to wrap this up uh, here because it's it's almost an hour. But I do want to make sure that folks. Um, you know, are able to to follow the work that you're doing because it is so important. And there's not, I think, a lot of people who are as directly engaged with it as you are, um, and and bringing the attitude that you are to it. Uh, uh, so, where is the best place for people to kind of follow you, follow your work on, on the internet, um, if if they they so choose to do? Sure, um, they can go to the NYU Rudin Center website, um, which is wagner.nyu.edu/rudincenter. Um, or they can follow me on Twitter at Sarastar, S-A-R-S-T-A-R. Um, those are probably the two best places to find me. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you. This was a really interesting conversation and hopefully we'll have more of these. Um, and thanks again to our audience for listening to another episode of the Atomicast. Cast.